It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode uh, is one of the legends of AFL, or VFL as it was uh, back when he was playing. Uh, he plied his trade at uh, two of the uh, pre- prestige clubs uh, in Victoria, uh, at Collingwood and at Richmond, before being lured back home to be part of the inaugural West Coast Eagles side. He's known for an, his incredible work ethic, his commitment uh, to fitness off the field and a commitment to attacking the ball on the field. But there is so much more uh, to the life and times of our guest, John Anir. Welcome and thanks for your time. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, nice to be here. Um I, I can't wait to hear more about your um, your time with Luciano Pavarotti as well. When I was doing some research on you, I read that and thought, well, I, I need to hear that story because that's bizarre. I mean, you, you come across some people in your time, but how you and Luciano Pavarotti ended up, you know, yeah, <laughs> touring the world together is quite unusual. Yeah, look, I had an uncle who was a physio, Rob Baker, and um, um, on front and centre of his sort of hallway was this um, picture of... Um, Dame Margot Fontaine, a ballet dancer. Mm. And I thought, holy hell, you know, how, how on earth did you ever come across someone that was so well-known? And, uh, yeah, it's one of these weird things that just falls on your lap and um, mm. it literally did that to me. And, yeah. Uh, I had a wonderful two years trying to make this big unit move. And uh, <laughs> that was – I think it was more the graphs and the and the little sort of um, – you know, counting his steps each yeah. day. It was trying to be innovative that way to get him mm. going more than sort of trying to get him to do things in a pool. So, yeah, no, very yeah. exciting time. We'll get to that uh, in a little bit because, that yeah, that's a, a pretty epic story in itself. But, uh, John, you grew up in the in the goldfields at mm-hmm. Kalgoorlie Way. Yep. Uh, what did mum and dad do? Um, look, they're both Kalgoorlie people. Yeah. Uh, my dad's a mining engineer. Um, my mother is a teacher. And um, we basically... Did most of my schooling in Kalgoorlie. We moved then to a place called Widjimultha, which um, it's really just a very small spot between Coolgardie and Norseman. And uh, we're living on a mine site, which Mm. was fairly unheard of in those days. Most mining towns would have a purpose-built town. So this was one of the first earlier ones where, I guess, sort of the the people running the show would live not far from the mine site. So um, it was only a one-teacher school. Yep which uh, turned out to be an absolute crack of a school. Um, and what, just a handful of kids? Yeah, 13 kids. Yeah. And this this uh, particular teacher was a very good footy player in Kalgoorlie, Jack Robinson. He basically just, all the kids there just self-paced. Um, and mm. uh, so in about six months, both of my brothers overtook me. Um, I'd been sent to boarding school and, uh, and th- these two others just um, 
you know, brother Pete and Steve, they, they just study there at um, Widgeon Walther Primary. And as I said, overtook me. They It was just a wonderful teaching program. Mm. They made a 13-hole golf course there. and <laughs> um, Yeah, so that that's really... Um, so really heading down to boarding school. Yeah. And then um, I was at Christchurch and then took a year off, worked in Cambauda on the diamond drilling rigs. Yeah, back to home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Cambauda's just... Uh, Oh, it's about 30 minutes south of Cow. So played country footy for a year. And then uh, just very lucky to get asked to come down to um, Claremont. Mm. Um, Gray Moss was coaching. And, uh, yeah, just had a wonderful three years mm. of just uh, – in, in some ways, it, there was lots of aspects about playing at Claremont when you sort of just put all your footy time together. It was very, very unique in, mm. in um, I guess, connecting with a lot of people that you still – Mm. A lot to do with, and I know that a lot's made about premierships. Um, we didn't, in my time there, didn't win a premiership. Later on, they did, but um, I don't think that's necessarily the front and centre of of having su- successful friendships in footy. Yeah. It's just a, having a collective group of people that have a good chemistry, look after each other, and, and that yeah. still happens today. Yeah, yeah. that um, that small town, close knit community, you know, quiet life being out in a tiny town mm. uh, where you grew up. Is that still where you feel sort of most yourself, most at home? Do you, yeah. do, you do you like the open space and the peace yeah, of Yeah, I do. But it's it's a bit weird, you know. I, I'd i love to be able to say you can go back and um, see it, where you used to live, but unfortunately... Is it even there anymore? No, that's that's yeah. the thing. We, when we lived in Kalgoorlie, we lived in a place called Trafalgar, and Dean Irving lived there. I think Kempy lived further yeah. up the road. But... You go to the Trafalgar now, it's at the very end of the pit. And um, so <laughs> yeah. so you can't really take your kids back and say, look, these are the sand dunes or slime yeah. dunes we used to you know, tunnel in. And Yeah, this hole wasn't here. Then. Yeah, yeah, and the Boulder Block Hotel, all those stories of um, these miners coming up, getting some King Browns at lunchtime and taking them back down and you know, they'd bring the odd bit of gold up through the back door. So all those stories that were just so unique, it's just yeah. in some ways a real shame that it all went. But yep. time moves on and, and, and Calgary's prospered because of that, that mm. big pit. Um, yep. But it also has other issues. I mean, you know, a lot of the guys now are working around the clock on 12-hour shifts, so you, you don't have that normality to be able to play sport. Mm. And I think that's, um, you know, it suffered a bit in Kalgoorlie, you mm. know, getting numbers to be able to turn up to training yep. and being very much around a roster. So, yep. look, big changes, but I, I just had a wonderful life there and yeah. had a stint in Norseman as well. And, yeah, so that's really where my real roots are for sure. The change, you know, going from that very small community in the goldfields to a boarding school atmosphere at, at, at Christchurch, did you take that in your stride or was that a bit of no, a shock to the system? No, it's, it, um, you know, I, I laugh now, but um, Twiggy Forrest, he was in the other boarding house. Twig and I spent more time in in sort of the, the medical centre. I think Twig because he'd be fighting all the time and me because I was bawling, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and the, if you ever watch Ripping Yarns, there's that great sort of um, thing where the school leopard kept catching the student to try to escape. And that was a bit bit of me, I think, to try and get to the station. And oh, you were, you were out of there. You're yeah, I was out of there. Yeah. And uh, I think I wrote a letter to my mum every night. And so it, was a, it, it wasn't a really good time to separate from family and my brothers. You know, I was very close to them and... Um, but, you know, it, it's funny how things happen. You know, I look back on it and sometimes we'd be maybe a bit over-precious nowadays. Um, what that did is is made you just sort of find a footing mm. that 
got you solid. And that's where sort of I really, I could run, but I really then made running a big thing. Yep. And uh, then found, I found some sort of safe zone by, you know, connecting with a lot of the, the school coaches. And, mm. uh, and you know, it just sort of toughened you up a bit. Mm. I, I don't think I'd put my kids through it. Um, yeah, but you, you do definitely, you're forced to be resilient. Yep. And there was no way... You know, I could get on those trains anymore at East Perth Station. They got to know me or they'd already have a, <laughs> a, a phone call from the school. He's, he's heading your way. And <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the interesting times. Yeah. Really. So was Twiggy a mate of yours then? Yeah, yeah. He, so yeah. Twig, um, Twig had a real rough time there. Um, <clears throat> he had a uh, – look, he, he sort of – he had a bit of a stammer and I don't, I don't think Twig would mind me, you know, telling the story but – and would be teased a bit and um, – he would let rip, and uh, he would take on any kid, any size, yeah. and and I can. I think he's still so, got a bit of that. In he him, definitely has, yeah. yeah. And look, in, and <laughs> he tells a great story how his dad then moved him to Hale, and he says, "You better get get a bit rid of that, otherwise it's going to happen again." So he joined the debating team at yeah. Hale, and the rest is history. Mm. So you know, in some ways, it built massive resilience in his world as well. Mm. I mean, look, going to boarding school now, you, there's so much more, you know. There's so there's so many things that just weren't right living yeah. in those times, and it just doesn't happen now. But yeah, um, uh, yeah. yeah, formative years though. Yes. Uh, so why did you go back to the goldfields then after you'd finished school? Uh, did you want to get out of the city? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. yeah, just just felt very comfortable. You know, I was, and my wife says now, you know, I've still got that cowgirly bogan in me. You know, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll get. You know, I like getting out on dirt bikes and yeah. and doing just stuff that's just the opposite to Chris. You know, she's a surfer, so we are really poles apart. But yeah, I, I just it just that's just where you grow up and and you you just have that yeah the smell of the the countryside. Yep, it's just very different. The yeah. big open space. Yeah, yeah, and and really good people. You know, I'd yeah I disappear there for a while, and you you get back there, and it's just mm. just normal. So mm. it's yeah, it's it's a it's a nice sort of, um, you know, comeback spot, that's for mm. sure. So then, you know, f- from there to Claremont, essentially, under Graham Moss, <laughs> um, but then an even bigger step. I mean, there's Goldfields to Perth, but then there's Perth to Melbourne mm. um, to go and play for Collingwood. Yeah. How did, how did the, the switch from Claremont to Collingwood come about? Um, I, I was playing with a guy called Kevin Worthington, yep. and he'd come back to Perth and... Felt, I think he felt there was still plenty of footy left. Mm. And um, so I guess with the people coming to over to uh, Perth to reconnect with him, and by the way, he was a really good mate of Stan Magro. So, mm. um, so they, they – um, and I guess Kevin just – I was very lucky enough to, for him to sort of ask Collingwood to have a look at me. And, um, and I think they wanted that sort of – type of player yeah and uh, so I was just very very lucky and yeah. uh, you know I hadn't played state footy um, it was sort of one of those um, you know I guess you get that opportunity just you know that where many others could have also done. I look guys like Noel Morton mm. um, Daryl Panizza yeah they, they they are guys that I definitely think could have made VFL AFL mm. those times, but it was just you just get that lucky opening and yep. uh I was lucky enough to go to a, a club that was struggling a bit, and so that really gave me an opportunity to get a spot. Yeah, um, and then you know I was yeah. lucky enough to keep keep moving along. We need to take a break, John, but after that we'll get into more of your Collingwood days, and then on to 
Richmond, some incredible people that you met uh, along the way. So we'll talk about that too. This is Inspiring Stories. John Anir is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, footy legend John Anir is our special guest. Uh, John, um, the 80s, you know, what a time. Uh, but what a time for, for you to go across to a club like Collingwood um, to play VFL. Um, you know, muddy grounds, you know, you played hard, you played hard off the field. Um, just paint a picture for us. What what was it like going to Melbourne as a young man uh, to join a club like Collingwood? Well, it, it just had everything. Um, I, I um, end up boarding with a wonderful family, uh, the Williamsons, and Choco, Choco Williams yep. also boarded with me. So on one hand, we've got all the wildness that happens at Collingwood, and I've got – I'm living with the Pope, Choco. <laughs> and, um, but he, he, was, he was great around um, – so when, when Choco and I arrived, it was in 81, and um, Collingwood had just copped that hiding from um, Richmond in the grand final. That's where Bartlett kicked you know, seven or eight goals. Mm. So it was sort of exciting to be around a club that <clears throat> um, it was that was up there. Um, but the, I, I look in my um, year, the first year and a half, I played under Tommy Hafey, mm. and um, I, I just think it was sort of, it was that sort of father figure that um, that is sits alongside your own dad, but yep. you, you obviously listen to someone more than your own dad. And um, Tommy and, and I, and, and with a lot of other young guys, if you were prepared to sort of have that interest in looking after yourself, Tommy would give you everything. And to give you an idea, he'd get to training at four o'clock. He'd load up the bench press. He'd be doing about 200. You know, in those days, it would be about 100 kilos. He'd be whacking mm. those out and... He was as fit as a fiddle. He'd do mm. all the pre-season running. And um, he was just a wonderful mm. mentor. And he, he really looked after. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting. When he was um, given the um, the move on mid-season in the next year, you know, it ended up being about eight of the young guys that all just got in cars and went there. And we hadn't planned it, but there was just an arrival of all these. Everyone just wanted to do it. Yeah. Because you just, you just feel like you really wanted to play for him. So yeah. that, that was really... The wonderful thing. What I didn't appreciate about Collingwood as much as I do now is um, it's a bit like you, you, you've joined a motorcycle gang. You know, mm. you, you, you're, a, you're part of that forever and ever. They didn't put and, a tattoo on you, did they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think they were around that way. There were a couple of lame swallows and, uh, and a few nicknames on cars. But, yeah, that, that wasn't really the big thing. Um, but, yeah, they really do, you know, and, and I went to a function a number of years ago, and Eddie Maguire said, look, I tried to get Dermot Brereton here. He said, um, we know he's a Hawthorne champion, and and we, he'll always be the Hawthorne champion. But the fact he did play a game for Collingwood, and whether you play one or 300, you've helped and you've been part of the Collingwood thing. And I thought, wow, that, that really resonates that mm. um, what the foundations of that footy club are. Mm. And they do some marvellous stuff, you know, yep. with players going through some really difficult times. There's... Have a significant fund that's available, um, so it's a it's a magnificent club in, mm. in looking after people, um, and I I really appreciate that yep. appreciate that further down the track. 
it, it was a different time footy-wise, wasn't it? You had those suburban grounds there. Uh, mm. And, if you, you know, if you know the geography of Melbourne, you know, there's a, there's a cluster of suburbs that are essentially next to each other. It's very territorial. Yep. Um, and, you, you know, your home ground advantage is significant. What was Victoria Park? What was it like playing at well, Victoria Park when you've got a you know, character like Tom Hafey coaching, mm. you've got Stan Magro, people like that on the field, you, you, a young Peter Dacos yeah. even at that time? Yeah, and there's Renee well, Kink and, yeah. and Peter Moore. Look, it, it was amazing. Um, we, when we arrived, um, the, the newer batch like Dacos and Shaw and, and, and co., um, we weren't used to Tommy's training, and mm. and so you'd have a Friday, you'd have a Saturday game. Monday would be a recovery, which session would be an hour and three quarters. So you'd be doing circle work and circle work and circle work. Tuesday night would then be the big session, so yep. that would be two and a half hours. Yeah, and it'd be contesting and contesting circle work. Um, and then Thursday we would get maybe five thousand people training, and that would still be an hour and a quarter. So. As much as younger players could handle, the older guys just got so sick of it, and um, yeah. and so, come game day, um, uh, I guess that was the other part of it. It was just a massive following, and yeah. um, uh, you're right, it was very territorial. You, that was your patch, yeah. Um, and you know they play cricket all through the summer, and um, as soon as the the wet rains came, that sort of cricket pitch here was just yeah gooey. washed away, yeah. <laughs> and the shorts were sort of about half the size of what they are these days. So, so it was sort of a, a very interesting mix of these sort of near-on bikinis and mud everywhere. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but look, it, that, it'll never be those days again, but they're, they're etched in I yeah. guess, every person's mind of just that real VFL time mm. where, you know, your, your suburb was around yeah. the, the stadium that you played and at. You, the, you wore that yeah, badge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 1983, the, the third and final season there um, mm-hmm. was probably your best. Yep. at Collingwood, um, and yet by the end of it, you were about to leave. Uh, yeah, you, look, take us back to that yeah. time and what prompted the move to Richmond. Yeah, what happened the previous year, Richmond um, or Collingwood had got hold of Reigns and Cloak. Mm. So, and they, they, that there was re- a real tit-for-tat sort of transfer rivalry too, wasn't there? there between was, yeah. the, the and the that really wrecked Richmond. Yeah. You know, they, they, were, they were two you know, uh, iconic uh, players mm. in Richmond. And so Richmond then came back Collingwood and, and scooped five out of the six in the best and fairest and thought, well, so Phil Walsh, myself, um, Craig Stewart, um, Neil Peart, I think Wally Lovell. So there was a few of us that, Noel Lovell, a few of us that um, then were just given offers to, to move there. And, and I know Walsh and I, we, we, it was never our intention to sort of move. Yep. It was just hopeful that Richmond, sorry, Collingwood would sort of, yeah, maybe reward reward us a bit, but yep. they just weren't prepared to move. I think they they just spent so much money on these other guys. So look, it's one of those things that just happened so quick, and before yep. we knew it, we're in another we're in another sort of club. And um, I look back on it, and as much as I met some great guys at Richmond, um, I sometimes think just playing out your time at, at one club is a better way. You, you regret um, the move? Well, in some ways, yeah. Mm. Uh, um, it, it was very hard though to sort of. Um, you know, uh, I guess being young and being wedged in all that, mm. um, things just happened. Very, we ended up going to the Supreme Court on about day two. Um, the deal was done and Rich- yeah. Walsh and I were over at Richmond. Yeah. You, I mean, you 
played some good footy there, though, didn't you? At 84, you were second in the club's uh, yeah, yeah, best well, and it, fairest count. Yeah, so it all just started to happen then. Mm. You know, and then um, got a chance to play State of Origin back here. And so, um, yeah, it, it by that stage, sort of mid-20s, you'd sort of yeah. found out what it was all about. Yeah. And um, But it's interesting, in, in that time... At, in the six years at um, Melbourne, I had six coaches. So I started to wonder whether it, whether it was me that was just... You brought some sort of curse. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so... And then, then obviously West Coast started and they, they were really keen to get six season yep. players. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a, in some ways, maybe that cut myself short a bit because mm. um, you're really there just for a time to set the bar for the young crew coming through. Yep. And... And there was just a wonderful group of, of plays coming through, and and that obviously went on to ninety two and ninety four. Mm. So when, when you're at uh, Richmond towards the end of your stint there, at what point did you start hearing whispers about you know the the arrival of West Coast and the comp and and maybe that you would be a part of that? Yeah, I, I never really just never really took an interest in. It. I was happy at um, happy at uh, Richmond. Um, I got into physio over in. In Melbourne, I did radiography. Then got into physio. Had a great job at a sports medicine centre where Barry Richardson um, ran. Yep. Um, and so it was really an out of the blue call from Mossy and said, "Look, would you want to come home?" And um, at that stage, it it really was. If I was going to move back to Perth, this was the time. Otherwise, I'd end up finishing physio. Fair chance I could work with Barry, and and so forth. And so that was really thinking. Yeah, you know, my parents, my brothers are over back in Perth, and it was almost again one of those things that just knocks on your door. Yeah, uh, and and I, and I took it. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I, I guess arriving back here, there was Malaxis, Wiley, Glendinning, Turner, Phil Narkel, and myself, which were the older of yeah. the of the group, and the, um, who had a as you said a role to play not just on the field but in mm. guiding some of the the new recruits into the rough and tumble of of top level football. Yeah, look, it was was that, and 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 it just wasn't me. Dean Turner was a very good runner. Ross was very strong mm. in the gym. So all of a sudden, these these young guys have come out of, of um, waffle clubs that yeah. barely had a gym, and yeah. all of a sudden, looking at what these fellas were doing, and you know, and benchmark times, yeah. you know, in the two k and the fifty yeah. minute run test, you know, to yeah. you know to run eleven laps in eleven mm. half laps, it was a stunner. So all of a sudden. Just bringing all those training habits back, and one mm. of one of them in particular was Dean Turner because Fitzroy at that time um, uh, you know, were, were a very fit group, and they were they, were, they set you know real targets for you yeah. don't know what everyone's doing, and they were the first ones to do triathlons off season. So he he um, was really everyone used to watch Dick, you know what what they were doing, think well if they can do it, we can do it. So mm. that doesn't happen in one year, you know mm. it's it's a one or two years for everything sort of just to start to build. Mm. So really to, to, to just miss out on the finals in the first year, mm. getting used to travel. I don't think there was, yeah, you know, on the way home on the plane, you know, fellas would have a bit of a drink. I mean, the professionalism that goes on now, yet for us to be thrown to the deep end and just do all that travel mm. and just learning as you go, I mm. think it was just a remarkable effort to, yeah. to nearly get in the final. Absolutely. And speaking of um, travel and coming home, there is, of course, that that uh, that legend now that uh, is attached to your name, John, about yeah. the time you ran home from the airport uh, after a disappointing game. I'll get you to tell that story uh, in full 
right after we take a break. John O'Neill is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, Our special guest is a footballer known for being uh, incredibly fit uh, and committed and hard as nails uh, on and off the field. Um, John, we're at the point now where you, you, you're at West Coast, the, the, well, the first days of West Coast's uh, existence. Uh, you, of course, were one of the, the senior members of that, that squad early on. Um, your, you know, your fitness was pretty well known then. You were regarded as one of the fittest, if not the fittest blokes uh, in the AFL. Um, how did you sort of, I suppose, transfer that passion uh, throughout the squad when you got back, because you do have to set an example when you're in that uh, elder statesman yeah. slot, don't you? Yeah. Um, look, because it, because you've sort of you got a new coach, mm. um, they're not sort of saying, "Oh, look, you know, this year, last year, you you did this well. This year, let's just concentrate on such and such." You know, you start at scratch again with a new coach, and um, and you know what I could do was, you know, I could run. Yeah. You know, I could sort of push a bit in the gym so you know I guess you you, you just throw your best foot forward mm. and uh and so and but I had other like-minded people around it and yep. and the other thing we had all these young kids that were so impressionable yeah that was the other thing I mean like a young John Walsh oh, for instance yeah, I mean yeah. you would have what eight or nine years on yeah on Wusher yeah, who became so. sort of one of the I mean I dare say well, he took some cues from you along the yeah, way well, he, he what was up, he like as a teenager yeah well he ended up just it's really the roles that when we first went to Collingwood we were the mm. sort of, we were green around the years and you know it'd be the younger guys that always end up being locked in the sauna and the thing was turned up to 200 degrees so <laughs> yeah, the young ones often took the the brunt of the jokes but sounds uh, like boarding school yeah yeah like yeah that's right <laughs> so so Wush was and there was a, a quite a few you know not just Wusher, Monkey Brennan, you know, yep. they all, they all, um, you know, it was a very exciting times, and they're all young, so yeah. it was a really, um, you know, they really got on board. So yeah, you know, and again, the names I've mentioned in in all different facets, all just sort of had um, a bar set that took mm. these guys out of waffle and thought, holy hell, this mm. is where I've got to get to now. Mm. Now, if someone didn't kick a ball well to Glendinning, he'd let them know, and that mm. was like, wow, that's. That's not accepted. Mm. Local level, or yeah, or try oh, harder. Try yeah. better next time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the great stories that people know you for uh, was post. I think a, a, a loss to Geelong. You've uh, dragged yourselves back on an interstate flight, mm. um, and then you were so disappointed with your own performance that you ran home from the airport. Firstly, true story. It is, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think I can escape that now. Um, your, your girlfriend and friend at the time, I think, were at the airport. Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah. So, they, so you've abandoned them and gone. Well, for a yeah. Run. Look, yeah. I, I was, um, <laughs> I was a sad sack on the plane. I, I'd, I'd spent a fair bit of time on the pine. There was a bit of a misdemeanour behind the gut, behind the the uh, ball, and Ron thought that wasn't a good example. Um, but, but mind you, I wasn't getting a kick, and at that same time, I think I had some ridiculous number of physio exams. I don't know why it was ever like that. So my, my brain was just exploding. So yeah. it was a hell of a long ride back on a bus and then getting on a plane to come back to Perth. So I, I just felt like I was got to get out and run. And, yeah. uh, 
in the, in the going, dirty old shorts and socks. Yeah, and I, I had the white business memory, shirt. Yeah. And I think I'm just looking at the bridge where I ditched the shirt. And, um, <laughs> but I, I think I would have escaped except the fact that um, Tommy Stanich, he was the chairman of selectors, he was putting along in his car and spotted me. And then he parked his car up at the brewery and just was the only car in the car park. And um, so as I've run past, I thought it's an unusual car there by, by itself. And then the next minute I got to the uni and where that seafood van is normally parked, mm. and there's Tom out there on the path waving his <laughs> hands and uh, saying, look, do you want a lift? And I thought... Nice one, Tom. I'm at the, eight, at the 18k mark. I've got three k's to go, and now you're offering me a lift. And uh, so I know just look, look, I'm fine. He said, "You're sure? You're sure?" I said, "Look, I'm nearly home." So, um, uh, yeah. So that that got home. But got that, all the that's not normal behaviour. No, us, maybe not. Job. But um, and then by that stage, my, I sort of quickly caught up with everyone else. Like it wasn't um, hadn't done anything silly uh, in hindsight, maybe. But um, yeah, and then so. If it wasn't for Tommy Stanich, I think it'd all be just a hidden story. But sometimes I used to sort of go for a bit of a run after games just to sort of clear the head. I'd rather yeah. do that than, you know, um, yeah. you know, let it fester. Drown your sorrows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Well, another Tommy, Tommy Hafey, he'd be proud. Well, he, he right actually now, rang. Think, he, he rang yeah. about two days later and, and asked, did you do that? <laughs> and he wanted to know how far it was and how quick I did it. So could you do it faster next time? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So Tommy always liked that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, how would you characterise in your time at at West Coast? How do you reflect on it? Obviously, it's sort of the third uh, chapter of your VFL career. How, how do you reflect on that time? Um, I reflect on West Coast um, very differently. You know, um, I look. It's a wonderful club. It's got lots of history, but um, I, I felt, you know, at Collingwood and Richmond, and maybe they've got access to the MCG. They've got plenty of space to, you know, have past players. But it's very limited to what West Coast can offer past players. So, mm. and the and the and look, it's no fault of anyone. It's just that the basis of how this club was formed in Perth was by businessmen and business people invest to get an outcome. And when you look at more the historical clubs in Melbourne, that you know, they're suburban cricket and turf and football clubs. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think there's such a respect to people that have done their bit at the club, whether it's, again, you're Dermot Brown with one game or a Tony Shaw that's played 300 you've really been integrally integral in that growth of the club. Mm. And, and unfortunately, it's very different with West Coast. It's a business. Um, and I don't think in the early days it was set up to really have that respect of, of, of the people that have served their time there. Yeah. So, and I just think that that's Has just that the way Has that changed, do you think, given that they've now been around for a fair um, while? Look, I, I don't think it do has. It but But I, I think... One day, if they end up getting people from other clubs to be involved here mm. in admin, they may see that and think, well, where's, your, where's the player welfare? Not just the players doing their time now, but how do you look after your players after? Mm. Where, where do they meet? Mm. Um, what what's functions? And um, so unfortunately, everyone sort of does their bit and then disappears. Mm. And um, but that's just that's just the way it is. Mm. You go to a Collingwood pass player function, there'll be two hundred players there, and you know it doesn't matter who it's a or what you've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And um, so, yeah, so that's that's just the way it is. Yeah. And so do I go to the footy? You know, look, I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll go, but it's not part of my life. And I think yeah. if I was in Melbourne, it, it, it'd be very much a, a strong connection to go and see your mates regularly because they're going mm. to be there. And it's easy to get sidetracked with kids and footy and weekend sport, but there comes a time when they all disappear. You, you want to reconnect. Mm. And I guess some of us are at that age now, and um, it's hard to reconnect because because just the way things are structured. So putting you on the spot here, John, Eagles v Collingwood, who are you rooting for? Well, look, I, I've <laughs> I look, I, I just think – it's one of those things where I You're going to give there. me a non-answer, aren't you? Yeah, look, yeah. I sit there and I just have a foot in both camps. And, yeah. um, and then you don't I've got really a mate. who wins. No, I don't. Yeah. I don't. And I've got a mate then who's coaching there and you, you're following Guy McKenna here and Scotty Waters there and Dean Laley and Wooshie. Yeah. So, and then and then you even get to a point where Glenn Bartlett's trying to do something with, with Melbourne. I tend to sort of just sit there and just hope everyone has a good day. You know, yeah. I'm not, yeah. not next to someone on the couch even mm. screaming and almost going to commit yeah. hurry car if they don't mm. lose. Yeah, so. Um, the, the turnover of coaches that you <laughs> mentioned <laughs> during your time in in Melbourne, it sort of continued here, didn't it? Um, well, it did. By the end of it, you yeah. saw, how many how many did you go through? Well, after year how many 10. Careers, how many yeah. careers did you kill? <laughs> well, that, that, that's right. And, um, uh, well, I ended up having nine coaches in 10 years. And yeah. I think Mick thought, Mick was a bit smarter than me, and he thought, well, I don't get rid of Ania, he'll get rid of me just to keep this sort of record going. So I thought I could have played for another five years, but Mick sort of thought, right, I, I've got to get rid of him. Um, no, but, but that's no, but that that's basically, yeah, it it's sort of um, a very turbulent time of mm. just turning over of, of yep. coaches. And um, and uh, and I think, um, yeah, that, so there was that element of instability, mm. you know, just that you got this new coach each mm. each year. So. Yeah, something you probably had to get used to yeah, over many yeah, years. Right. Having said uh, that, you know, seeing so many of them then come and go, I'm guessing you would have learned a few things about what makes a good coach and and well, what makes them survive or not survive in a position. Mm. Did you ever sort of accumulate that knowledge and think, well, perhaps I'll give it a crack myself? Um, look, I, there was an opportunity at Claremont. At one stage, and in South Frio, but I, I sort of veered more towards family. Mm. Um, but interesting, um, I did sort of have uh, done this sort of this retrospective um, study back to 1981 when I first started playing, and looked at all the coaches and have come up with around 24 measurable traits, and using that as a predictor. And uh, without sort of going into too much, why I wouldn't be a good coach would be a couple of things. Um, first, I had more sons and daughters, so that that's a, a cross against you. <laughs> um, the second thing is um, um, one of the real factors, and if you look at the last 20 years, there's been 15 coaches that won premierships, yep. and they've all been premiership players. Right. And and I think that's that's a significant – that's not a 50-50. That, mm. that's, that's a significant step. Mm. Um, and another one that's, that's interesting, which has changed a bit now, there was around a 30% um, portion of the successful coaches up to recent times that had a teaching background. Is that right? Yeah. So when you look at it, if you've got more boys, you may have to make a hard decision and maybe sell off a couple. <laughs> and just go and do a dip ed and teach. 
And whether you win sort a of premiership, better, yeah, whether you sort of count sort of the Royals in Albany as a, yeah. as a thing, um, but it, it, there's a very very strong focus that you've yeah. got to have gone to the big dance, yeah, and and experienced it. When you say won a won a premiership, you're talking about a, a VFL or AFL yeah, premiership, yeah, or if you had to be an, an, a state level, player, yeah, yeah, okay. So if you take Alistair Clarkson out, yeah, you know that he, he's he's a bit of a um, an outlier in that sense, yeah. Um, if you took him out, then all of a sudden you've got, you know, what's that? That's 15 out of 16. I think Luke Beveridge was the other one. But mm. the others have all been, you know, premiership players. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, yeah. So that's, um, yeah, so hopefully I'll tidy that up soon. And, there's, a, uh, there's a few people coaching there who wouldn't want to read that, but a few people who might. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John, we need to take another break. After that, though, I want to hear about uh, your adventures uh, in the Hawaiian Ironman, you know, probably the toughest event of any kind uh, on the planet. So, you know, clearly you're mad. Uh, But as well about uh, Luciano Pavarotti, how that uh, association came to be. John O'Neill is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. John O'Neill is our special guest. Uh, John, post-football, your commitment to fitness uh, didn't diminish at all uh, to the point where you then decided to compete in probably the toughest event on the planet, the Hawaiian Ironman. Uh, was it almost a 4K swim, 180K ride, and then a full marathon uh, run? You're mad, right? Well, it was always um, – we, we uh, again, back in Richmond days, Phil Walsh and I, we, we sort of off-season, we'd go off and do these little mini ones around Melbourne. Mm. And holy hell, it was, it was so cold over there. So it was always been in mm. the back of mind. So when I finished footy, there was sort of a, a bit of a – bit of a void there so I just did the local scene for a while um then uh post kids um then thought right I, I, I want to go to the big dance so went and did this tra- this qualifying event in China which yep. was honestly it's uh, uh a, a lot of pros were there and uh they they all said this is the hardest race you'll ever, ever do it was 48 degrees they'd run out of water on the drink stations <laughs> There was ambulances going up and down, and it was on an island called Hainan Island, which was sort of like a big golf resorty thing. Yeah. So it prepared me well because I thought nothing's going to be as bad as this. Yeah. Um, so getting to to Kona, um, so I qualified in in China, and that was the first time. Um, getting to Kona, uh, it, it's sort of like um, what's it like? It's it's torture. Well, it starts off a lovely day because the swim's just beautiful. You, yeah. It's big sort of – there's these white dolphins that sort of you'd see every so often. So the swim you get out of there in, you think this, this is pretty yeah. good. This is all right. Yeah, you, you get on a bike, um, you head out, and you basically climb this hill to where there's a an old volcano called um, – and that's called Harvey. And you turn around thinking that it's downhill, but unfortunately – sort of the breeze starts to come in so mm. you've sort of gone uphill and then thinking there's a breeze to help you home but but you've now got a little mini sea breeze so mm. you get sort of an hour to get back into the, the the changeover it starts to really thinking this is now not becoming fun mm. and uh 
Um, <laughs> and and normally you're in Bustleton, you're sort of getting off the bike and you think, right, I haven't trashed myself too far. But all weird stuff starts going on. You know, you, you start feeling hot, then you start feeling cold. Then you're not sure if whether you wanted to eat. Then you're getting started to get agy. And then you start looking at your power meter more and more because you're trying to work it all out. But it's the body just starting to go through its first sort of moment of just thinking, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to be around much longer here. So you get back in, change over, and then then the run starts. And and thankfully, the first part of the run is down this sort of boulevard that's covered in palm trees. And that's almost like gives you a false sense of recovery because you finish that back into the the changeover area and then they send you back out onto what they call the Big K and this is basically this bitumen road that has the ocean over to the left and volcanic rock to the right and this volcanic rock is the same colour as the road, it's just black radiates, and it just radiates so yeah. it's look like someone's gone and put alfoil yeah. in either side and it's just they're following you with alfoil just radiating yeah. heat and it, it basically just gets ugly from there and um <laughs> And they throw you down a bit of a hill and there's a little jazz band at the end. You think, well, that, that gives you a momentary thing of, yeah. you know, getting back to a bit of a, a happy phase. But you leave the jazz band and then it's about... The torture about, continues. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's where... And so as much as you may have the most expensive bike and the best swim in the world, that's where it all just starts to happen, where people yeah. literally just stop, shuffle, um, sit on the side of the road... And it was an amazing thing. As I was coming back in the second year that I did it, there was a lady there that <laughs> coming out had literally one of those boots you get from the orthopedic surgeon. So she'd obviously had a stress fracture. And I thought, holy shit, she's swum. She's ridden a bike on it. And uh, and I can just remember that, just saying, that, that, is, a, that yeah. is a committed person. And, yeah. and finally, there was, a, there was a nun at 80 years of age. Wow. And, and she'd, she'd obviously... To qualify in her age group was a little easier than others, but she was out there that's doing incredible. it as well. That's incredible, yeah. Yeah, um, um, yeah so that, that's, that was a crazy few years doing those. I bet. And talk about a crazy few years. Really quickly, how on earth did you become the personal physiotherapist for the Italian opera legend Luciano Pavarotti? Well, again, that, I, I, You're going to have to give us the abbreviated... Yeah, look, it, it was just a real chance thing. His manager um, was uh, managed a young lady who's in Perth um, uh, by the name of Hayley Ecker and Pavarotti had finished his second concert in Australia and had really hadn't got great reviews. He'd been sitting and looked old. So the poor old physio that they had, an Italian guy, they shipped him out on the Sunday morning because they, they found he'd been playing cards and eating with the big fella. So um, as a last-minute ditch, instead of all this tour folding up, um, uh, Jeff Ecker rang me and said, can you give mm. him a try in the pool? Mm. And so, look, the long and short of it was I had him... Got in him on his feet again. and Got him in the pool. He loved yeah. the pool because it took the weight off uh, yeah. him. And, and then as we finished the first session thinking this was all over, um, he said, John, John, you want the photos? So he, uh, I said, look, that'd be great. I'll, I'll just prove to the fellas on the <laughs> yeah. ne- next day that this is what it my Sunday was about. Yeah. So I took a photo and... Um, the photo appeared about two hours later at the reception area and the lady there rang me and said, look, you got your photo here. The big German bodyguards have brought it in. So I arrived at work the next day and there's this lovely photo that he'd signed. In the envelope, there was $300 US and mm. it said, dear John, I hope you enjoy your dinner. And I thought, well, 
$300 US, and I think the parity is about 60, 60 cents yeah. to the dollar. That was about a $500 fee. And I thought well, if the big fella wanted me to have $500 dinners, <laughs> I'll end up being his size in about three months. But look, it all just happened then that um, about a week later, I yeah. joined his touring party and then basically... Toured the world with him. Toured the world and then lived in, lived in Modena with him. And um, yeah, it was just, Incredible. again, one of those just chance things that happened. Yeah. yeah, still amazing. Uh, I wish we could hear more of that, John, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. It's been fascinating. Thank Pleasure. you. Thanks, Tim. Uh, you've been listening to Inspiring Stories, the inspiring story of John Anea here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring Story. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it, like um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.